boys and girls, cats of all ages. Welcome to episode number 89 of the Development Hell podcast. Uh, we're recording on the 26th of February in 2017, sticking to the two episodes a month schedule that Ed and I tried to do back when we were actually trying to get sponsors instead of just giving up and plugging our own shit. So uh, other than a little bit of a delay while Ed dealt with work stuff, because apparently he didn't choose the startup life, the startup life chose him. Uh, mm-hmm. Ed, Ed is here. So how's it going, man? Don't hate the player. Hate the startup game. In which I didn't test stuff in the right browsers and stuff was not working. So really, you should blame the player in this case because I was the one who screwed myself. Well, at least you had a client nice enough to actually tell you that something was wrong instead of just like what most people would do would just ignore. (laughs) Yeah, I probably got. Well, well, this stuff is bullshit. Yeah, well, this stuff is bullshit and just closes the window. And, 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 you know, I'm going to go do a I'm going to go to GraphQL story instead of graph story. GraphQL story. Yeah, right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Good luck, suckers. Uh, Anyway. That uh, I did have to fix a couple things, and that now is working, and that pleases me that it's working. Uh, I like to see that. I like to see that very much. Yeah, you know, things are going okay, Chris. Just, you know, okay. I got, I'm here. I got my cat. I got, uh, got my phone vibrating at me with alerts that I'm going to ignore. Let's see what's happening here. Not reporting. Oh, well, that's because I closed, I turned that machine off. And terminated that instance. I'm going to just ignore you. Thank you, New Relic. Most of what you do is noise. Anyway. <laughs> that's that's about the best endorsement you're going to get from Ed about anything. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, let's, uh, um, let, let's launch into the sponsor spiel and then get going because our guest is getting kind of antsy, I think. Yeah, I'm sure he is. He's ch- chomping at the bit, as they say in America. Wonder Network. Have you ever wondered how your network is performing? How about how it's performing from East Africa or Greenland or some other places in the world or Kansas? Wouldn't you like to know? I would. Go to Wonder Network, wondernetwork.com, where they have lots of tools and stuff like Where's it up? Where's it at now? Why is it? That one's more of a metaphysical kind of <laughs> network check. Um, uh, Shot Sherpa. Let's take pictures of stuff all over the place. Except it's the same thing. You'd think it'd be like, I'd let, I'm going to see uh, a bunch of pictures of cool stuff all over the world. But no, it's taking pictures of the same thing from a bunch of different places. And doesn't someone else like take the picture and, and uh, when it was the Sherpa that really did it? Yeah, it was the Sherpa. I mean, the Sherpa doesn't really get the credit. A little, 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 uh, little Mount Everest humor for people there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, the, the, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty, economy. it's pretty high level humor. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's, and, it's, and, and what's the yeah. new thing? Cause Paul emailed us and you sent a very witty reply where you said, I'll allow it. So why don't you share with the folks what, uh, I don't Mr. Know. Well, Mr. Reinheimer is trying to get be, us to push. I guess we could say the name and I think we're going to, uh, let me make sure it like it shows up. There's a thing called Observe IO. Observio. Observio. Observe.io. So O B S E R V as in Victor.io. 
And it says global observability into your product. Detect, observe, and diagnose problems on the global network. And you can uh, request a key uh, to get into the beta. I don't know what it does. I forgot. It looks like uh, some kind of pacifier. An alien pacifier. An alien pacifier with one eye. I don't... So there's no depth perception, I guess, in this product. It's just a single cyclopean eye. Anyway, I'm sure it's cool or something, but I don't really know what it does. So maybe you should try it out. This probably is not the kind of pitch that Paul was hoping for. Well, we'll, we'll talk to him. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get him on the show the next episode and, uh, uh, and find out how he's adjusting to being a parent and all that other wonderful stuff. Oh, yes. That would be nice to know. That's probably why it's shaped like a pacifier. Yes. Anyway. Well, this is the thing, um, that, he sh- this is the thing that he showed us at True North. Yeah, I just can't remember what it did. Yeah, he did show it, and it it sounded interesting. Um, I think it gives you a bunch more details about like potential about you know what's going on between say the uh, people in uh, Soviet Russia and your servers, and it gives you a fair bit of detail about all that stuff, and uh, you know to help uh, observe and diagnose those kind of problems. I just haven't messed with it for a little bit, so he'll have to probably pitch it better than I'm doing right now. Anyway, that's a cool thing that Wonder Network's doing, and you should check them out, Wonder Network. And uh, as, and always, as always, thank you to Paul for being a longtime supporter of the podcast. Longtime supporter. And you got your grumpy learning at grumpylearning.com or grumpy-learning.com, both of which kind of work. There's a couple of books about testing and how you write a test. Do you know how to test? I don't. Maybe if I'd read the books, I'd know, and I'd be a real boy. <laughs> oh, man. I keep forgetting to mute during the, uh, during the read. Yeah, come on, man. you got to hit the cough button. Um, yeah, and uh, that's a thing. Uh, there's a big quote from Gary Hawken on the front says how good it is to buy those books. There's two books right now. Check it out. And uh, maybe after a while, if enough people buy them, Chris will stop complaining about how his business is falling apart. And then our third sponsor, Open Sourcing Mental Illness. The important one. OSMI is a nonprofit 501c3 organization. That is dedicated towards supporting mental health in the tech workplace and amongst tech professionals. If you go to osmihelp.org, we've got lots of resources there for you. Uh, lots of ways you can uh, help out. We have handbooks for employers and employees. Uh, we've got links to other kinds of resources. Uh, survey data uh, that we've collected. Some largest surveys about mental health in the tech industry. We've got forums that you can talk with other people about the kinds of issues that you're dealing with or that you uh, might be wondering about. All sorts of good stuff. So you can follow us on Twitter at OSMI Help. You can probably find us on Facebook at Open Sourcing Mental Illness. I think it's Osmi Help on Facebook, too, like Facebook.com. Let's try that. Come with me now, friends. Facebook.com, OSMI H-E-L-P. Will it work? It worked. That's fabulous. I love it. 
Anyway, yeah, go to osmehelp.org, and uh, we're in good shape. Uh, we're going to have a fundraiser coming up soon, and I'll start yelling at about that in a couple weeks probably. So save your pennies, kids, and then give them to us. You mean Back give, to you, Chris. <laughs> thanks for that really important sponsor readout. So since Ed and I are, have both made the mistake about saying nice things about Laravel in public where our quotes can be archived for That's future true. generations to call us the sellouts that we truly are, we decided we would have uh, a nice person from the Laravel community on. So welcome to Mr. Matt Stauffer. Matt, finally you can say something. Ha ha. I've just been sitting here trying to hold in my laughter. I should have used the mute button, but hi. <laughs> hey. So yes, we had it's been like trying to hold a sneeze in. Yeah. <laughs> hurt yourself the, you blow your sinuses out through your ears when you uh, hold your sneeze in. I, I found, heard your eyeballs popped out when you did that. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good thing I got uh, the Canadian uh, social uh, socialized medicine, so I can do that as many times as I want, and uh, they'll just... Mm. They'll just stitch me back together. It's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we had, we had tried to have Matt on a whole bunch of times, but uh, his way more important than us uh, personal life yep. kept in, kept intruding. Um, like, whatever, bro. But at least now he's on, and uh, we get to talk to Matt. So, <laughs> so, uh, so the, the main reason I want to have Matt – what did you just say, Ed? Are you saying computer? I just said computer. Computer? <laughs> What is com I like com computer? Like, like, uh, like I, I'm always kind of channeling Scotty in Star Trek Four. Uh -huh. Computer, like hello, computer. That's that sounds more like Chekhov than Scotty. I'm not very good at accents. I can tell you, <laughs> really not very good at them. Uh, I'm sorry. Why did you want to have Matt on? Well, number one, he's uh, a nice guy. Number two, he's done podcasting, so it's like. Uh, friend in solidarity to see us through the dark times and finally oh, yeah. he he wrote a book that has like an animal on the cover and everything so i wanted yeah, i need to wet my beak on that yeah so we need we need you to whip up a referral code for us and then we'll throw it on here uh and make a you know make a little bit more money that way i wanted to talk to matt kind of briefly about uh his experiences because i remember when matt had I remember Matt had been talking about he wanted to do a book. And of course, most people know my personal opinions on, on self-publishing. And I've always been like, well, you know, if you can put all the, if you're willing to do all the effort, the marketing and all that stuff uh, yourself, then self-publishing is a good way to go. But if you just want to write the book um, and have someone else do all that stuff for you, then probably going through a regular publisher is a good idea. So, so Matt, why don't you to talk to us a bit about like the, the the book itself and and how you decided to do it and the actual process of, of working uh, with the fine folks at O'Reilly? Yeah. Um, so the book is called Laravel Up and Running. So it's LaravelUpandRunning.com. Oh, and it's also on Amazon and O'Reilly. Um, and the way it happened was O'Reilly reached out to me. And they said, hey, uh, we're considering doing books in the framework space because previously everything had been language or pattern or whatever else. And we were considering doing framework. Um, we like your writing. Uh, would you consider sending in a, and I forget what they call it, but basically a proposal for this book. And I have grown up reading O'Reilly books um, since I was in middle school, at least. I've got, you know, three animal books by my bedside, and I've got probably five or ten of them on my bookshelf at work. So I wrote this in a blog post, but it's basically like being a rapper who grows up listening to Jay-Z, and then, you know, you start rapping, and then Jay-Z 
asks you to be, you know, on one of his tracks. It's just kind of a mind blowing. And so the, the immediate response was, of course. Um, but then of course you have to, you know, measure and understand well, what's, what are you committing to and what's responsibility going to be. And one of the things that I think really helped was in the survey, they're really trying to suss out whether you're going to do a good job. And so they're asking you questions like, um, you know, what's your audience and why, why are you um, uniquely capable of writing this thing? And, and what are you actually going to write? Cause there's a big difference between, Hey, you know, I'm going to write a book about Laravel and, you know, I'm going to write the book that is the 200 page, you know, introduction or the, you know, 800 page manual or the, is it, is it a getting up, you know, a getting started version or is it for the pros? Is it about testings about this or that or the other? So it really kind of forced me to think through those things in a way that I don't know if I would have even um, known to think through if I was kind of going on my own. So I think that the biggest benefit that I got early on from O'Reilly, other than just them kind of giving me the validation and the prompting to think about it was just kind of a little bit of, um, forcing me to ask some important questions up front. Um, you know, what, what is this going to be about? Why should you actually be able to do this? And of course that gets you in the mode of wanting to prove yourself, right? Like, well, I can do this. Um, and so I submitted that in and they said, yeah, we want to do this. It sounds good. We originally signed up for a 200 page book that was supposed to be a pretty light overview. Um, and, uh, it ended up 480. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so that was, yeah, it was over a year of time writing and it, it, it's the right length. 480 pages, is exactly the length that a, a, a comprehensive introduction to Laravel, um, for a relatively technically capable PHP developer, unfamiliar to Laravel. Um, that's, that's who it's for. And that's exactly what they need. Um, my number one kind of goal in writing it, um, originally was I wanted to make sure that people who just, I know so many PHP developers who were like, yeah, I'm kind of interested in Laravel, but I don't know where to get started. Um, I wanted those people to have something, not only that taught them everything, um, but also that when they were done with chapter one, they had enough to go start hacking. And then, you know, you'd hit your point where you needed something else and then you'd go read chapter two and then you could hack further, you know, to give you that kind of iterative, iterative experience. But pretty quickly on, I realized I also wanted a place to point people to as like, this is the place where all the information is together in one place. Um, you can go to Jeffrey Way's Laircasts, everything's there. You can go to Docs, everything's there, but everybody learns a different way. Um, and for me, this is like a, there's a book where if you pick it up, um, you start knowing nothing and you end knowing as much as, you know, I want my developers to know basically. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was the kind of the high level story of doing it. And one interesting thing about working with O'Reilly is that um, I kind of thought the same way you did, Chris. And one of the things I love about Chris is how, um, frank he is or open. And so I That's signed a, up and a I, very, a very nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I signed up and I said, um, Hey everybody, I'm going to be recording or I'm going to be writing this book. And within minutes I got a DM from Chris and he basically said like, are you sure you know what you're doing? Have you considered self-publishing? I know this is really awkward because you've already tweeted it out, but you should really consider self-publishing. And to me, that someone would do. I mean, so like I dated a girl in high school and it was like the absolute worst match ever. Like everyone around us knew that we shouldn't be dating. And I dated her for like four years or something like that. And when we finally broke up, like everyone I knew was like, yeah, yeah, you guys were terrible together. I was like, why did you not say something? Right. <laughs> so like Chris coming in within minutes and being like, Hey, Hey bro, you know, back off on that. You should self publish. I really appreciated it. In the end, what I said then was, you know what, I'm actually not really doing this for money. I'm really doing this for, you know, basically what I tell people is like having an O'Reilly book to my name is my PhD, right? Like I went to school for English. You know, I, I don't have any training as a developer. I'm self-taught since the nineties, you know, it's, you know, I, I view source and that's why I learned HTML and CSS, you know, kind of thing. And so 
to be able to have something I can point to in 10 years and say like, that is my work and that is my proof that I know what I'm doing was, that was kind of my number one goal. But I did have still in the back of my head kind of thing that Chris said, right? Whereas like, is it, are you capable and interested in doing all the work yourself? Or do you want to just write it and let other people do all the work? Well, that's how I thought about it. It turns out you still do all the work when you go with the traditional publisher. Like I still do marketing. I still broaden my own copy editors. I still, um, figured out the layouts and how long it was going to be and made sure my code was actually running well. And I still run the promotion where I say, you know, tweet a picture of your book within blah, blah, blah. Now, like they might suggest those ideas. They might take some of the, um, the, the, the manual work out of it for me. And of course, like when people are submitting errata to me, like they can submit it to O'Reilly's website where they already have a pre-built system for tracking those things. So I don't have to build that. Um, and of course, O'Reilly markets it to their market. So it's not like they don't provide any benefit. They certainly do, but it's more like they're providing benefit on top of the base work that you write, um, or that you put in to write a, um, uh, self-published book versus taking stuff off of your plate. And that was where my expectations were totally out of sync with reality. So well, that sounds horrible. <laughs> it's like, wow, you still have to do all the work and they take a bigger cut? Damn. Yeah, they take a pretty massive cut. Well, so I knew they were going to take a massive cut, but it was worth it for the for the notoriety of O'Reilly, but also for expanding Laravel to their market, right? Like they have a huge market that I don't. And so that doesn't mean just that my book is getting out there, but now there's a whole bunch of old head PHP people who are being like, oh, hey, you know what? I've got, my company's got an O'Reilly subscription or I trust O'Reilly. This is my, you know, resource to turn to. But the thing I did not think about is that they also control the pricing and they distribute to Amazon. So a 480 page book, I probably would have sold it for 80 bucks or something like that. I mean, we're talking hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of my life over the span of over a year. Um, so they priced it at, I think 45 or something like that. And then they sold it on Amazon and Amazon dropped it down to 30. And then I make a very small cut of that. So I already knew I was losing a little bit, but man, <laughs> if, if you're going to go with a major publisher, you got to remember all the pieces. And I, I, I knew that they, I was going to lose a cut. I did not think about all those other aspects of it. I mean, I, I hated Amazon for a while. I yeah, was just like, I, you guys screwed me over basically. Yeah. You know, like, like, uh, Matt's description of it is pretty accurate. My just whole thing was like, like, my experiences from other people that had written books for publishers and I had looked at with my aggressively, uh, my aggressive frankness, as uh, you put it, was looking as like, okay, like I, I know for a fact I've made a lot more money for a lot less effort by self-publishing on a lot lower volume. So when I looked at it, I mean, I saw Matt was doing a book. I'm like, this is great. Someone's getting a book. And I was just literally like, okay, you're going to do this. No, just like, as long as you go into it, understanding that O'Reilly is going to take uh, a much bigger cut. And they're going to do all these things for you in exchange for that cut. As long as you're okay with that and you like having the O'Reilly name behind. And believe me, I had people who told me my books and stuff weren't legit because it wasn't a real publisher because I did it right. myself. And I was just like, whatever, buddy. I'm wiping away my tears with $100 bills. I'm not that concerned, right? The, the, Woody, uh, the Woody Harrelson from Zombieland thing, right? Um, right. But, you know. I, I just I felt like, you know, I had a tiny bit of a connection with Matt. We weren't antagonistic towards each other. So I just thought, hey, just put a little seed in there. You know, if I mean, maybe if you get into a thing with O'Reilly and it doesn't work out because sometimes these relationships with the publishers, the book gets canceled. The book doesn't end up being what you want and, and it never gets published. Just the thing like it, as long as you I, I felt like I wanted to say, hey, as someone that has done it themselves and spoken to people that have written books for O'Reilly, wanted to feed you a little bit of info and say, if you're cool with this scenario and you like 
having O'Reilly behind you to help you with a bunch of stuff that you may not be able to do yourself or not be able to easily do yourself because a lot of these things, marketing things are, you know, a lot of this, you have to learn how to do them. And if you're comfortable with that stuff, then great. O'Reilly will be a really good option. But if you're interested in like doing it yourself and reaping the maximum uh, reward from all the work, because even my small books that I tend to do are like 100 to 120 hours of my life just to write them. And then there's all this other stuff on top of it, the marketing, the building of websites, the endless shilling on social media. Those, those are things they all take take time. And, and I just looked at it and said, I wanted to keep the maximum amount of money from the efforts. Now, O'Reilly is good solid books. I, I can see from where I'm sitting on my desk. I have several O'Reilly books, although I'm not as obsessive as Matt and have them next to my <laughs> next to my bed, because like that stuff doesn't belong anywhere near my bedroom. But um, but yeah, I have plenty of O'Reilly books as well. So O'Reilly is a, a good, good brand, good to have their support. Um part of me is like surprised that you had to do so much work, but also part of me from having talked to Amy and her own experiences on going with the publisher, I'm kind of not surprised that you've done almost as much work on the book, like uh, on the non-writing parts. I, there's a mm-hmm. whole bunch of things I would have thought the publisher would have been, uh, would have stepped up to help you with, but it's interesting. I mean, not that I'm ever going to write a book for, for a major publisher. Cause there's kind of no point for me at this, you know, having developed a brand and everything, why would I want to give that up? But, um, it's, it's interesting to, to, to hear that, uh, you pour in just as much, um, effort into it as I did. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. I would, I would definitely say that, um, if you want to make money and there's nothing wrong with this, you want to make money doing a book, stay as far away from traditional publishers as you can. And that's not shade. They know that too. Um, if you want somebody to take the work off of your hands um, and you have enough money to flip the bill, um, self-publish and hire people to do those pieces for you. Hire an editor. Um, dear God, hire an editor. No matter what, please hire an editor. Yes. But hire an editor and hire a promoter and hire whatever else. Um, the, the, the reason to go with the traditional publisher is to get the things that a traditional publisher uniquely can offer you whether it's um, their reputation or market and access or whatever else it is. And, and in the end, that was my number one reason for going with, with O'Reilly, and I got it. I'm not disappointed. Um, so for me, it was more like, I think my only level of disappointment was I got the things I wanted, but I'd also had my back of my head, and I'm going to make this little chunk of change. And I did, but it was just a much smaller chunk of change because of the whole Amazon and them pricing it situation. But in the end, that wasn't my goal. So I still am satisfied I do wish I'd known about those factors going into it, but that was nobody's fault, but just my inexperience. So I think the key thing to also remember here is that the circumstance, my circumstance is a little bit different where I don't worry about paper copies. I focus almost exclusively on just the ebook. I provide paper copies for people who really want to pony up for them. But in your case, if you wanted paper copies and you wanted really deep penetration into the into the programming market, then yes, you absolutely need someone like O'Reilly because yeah. they will print all those books. They will get them into the few remaining uh, you know, actual brick-and-mortar retailers that are fighting the good fight. They'll get your book onto Amazon. You'll be able to buy it from... Uh, you'll be able to buy the paper version from O'Reilly itself. So in that respect... That's something that I don't think, as a self-publisher, I can manage um, very easily. I do sell my eBooks through Amazon, so every once in a while, some money just dumps into my bank account, and I get an email from them that, "Oh, you made twenty-seven dollars from e- from Amazon this month on your book." I'm like, "Yay?" Question mark. All right, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit of extra money I didn't have before. But uh, if I had been concerned about wanting paper version of my book and really deep 
like really getting deep into the tech market, then I probably would have like done up these books and submitted them to, you know, more experienced publishers to get the dead tree versions. I mean, I do go and get printed copies of my books. So I actually have copies of them uh, on my bookcase at home. But for me, it was always just about the ebook. And that was, um, it was one way of me saying I can control the ebook experience almost completely myself through self-publishing, but the paper one, I don't think I could ever without help and hiring people and all that stuff. I don't think I could have had the, I don't think I could have repeated the same success um, with paper copies. That's a fantastic point because um, when I when I when I talk about them having you know the work being the same on my side, I only mean uh, distributing um, eBooks as compared to the work I've seen people do on LeanPub. Uh, the moment you get into um, marketing outside of your personal network, um, the moment you get into print, the moment you get into breaking access into whether it's the education space or you know big enterprise or physical bookstores. Um, O'Reilly's just going to blow away any, even if you hire people, O'Reilly's just, they have access, they have experience, they have the people. So, and I definitely did get those. And like I said, like one of my big values was I want, I want Laravel to succeed. I want it. I want to see more people use it. I want to see it. uh, People who want to use it have a really easy onboarding process. And so, yeah, like you said, man, if you want to get into those markets, that's, that's the way to do it. And I mean, I, I don't know how much I'm supposed to reveal about this, but I sell more print books than I do eBooks. So that doesn't shock me at all for O'Reilly books. O'Reilly has that big reputation. The the books look good. You can use them to prop up your monitor when you're tired of them. I mean, it's, 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 (laughs) it's a good option. So, so I guess the big, big question I have for you is, has writing a book soured you on doing any follow-up books? Um, I would, I will never publish with not, not never, I will not publish with a major publisher in quite a while for quite a while. Um, in part because of what I just said, you know, I got the value of the O'Reilly name, but I, they, they said that up front. They're like, Hey, look, you know, it's totally fine if you want to write a book with us and then do a lean pub book after that. We don't, we don't have any problem with that. And I'm, they're right on that. So if I wrote another book, it would be a lot shorter. Um, it wouldn't be 480 pages. I, I would self-publish. Um, I'd either go the lean pub route or the, you know, the Adam Wathen, you know, build the PDF yourself and distribute it in Gunroad route, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I would do one of those. Um, the thing it soured me on actually was writing <laughs> blog posts for a while because I had, it's the thing where like um, you love playing guitar. Uh, it's your favorite thing to do and every spare second you get, you play guitar and then you get a gig as a guitarist and you have to play it and you have to dredge yourself up through on the days when you don't want to play guitar, you have to go play it because your paycheck relies on it. And then all of a sudden you don't want to play guitar in your free time so much. Um, that happened with tech writing because I mean, I'm just telling you every spare second, 480 pages of tech writing. It's an incredible amount. It's it's an incredible amount. And so I just like it for a while there, I just not uh, for a while. I didn't have any time. Um, but then even when I was done with the book for a while there, I was just burnt out and I just needed to take a little bit of time. And I wrote on some soft topics. I just kind of let the blog languish a little bit. I'm just now back to the point where it's actually really fun to write a technical blog again. Yeah. So it definitely had an impact. For me, between doing the books and uh, tweeting 17 billion times, um, blogging is – I very rarely blog now. I usually blog when I solve a problem for something at work and and I'm sure as uh, – um, and this kind of segues nicely into the next topic about – I've gotten back into digging into the code base for OpenCFP, some things that I discovered that I feel I want to share. But um, yeah, I mean uh, – you know, I'm I'm glad you did the book. Uh, the response to it looked really, really good. Um, and 480 pages is a lot of goddamn work. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, 
sometimes it's um, sometimes it's almost important. I know it's like a weird thing to say, but sometimes it's important to actually go through it and do it, execute on something major like that, mm-hmm. just to like prove that you're actually capable of executing. Because uh, I mean, before we started recording, you know, Matt and I were talking about some other related stuff and a book that I'm working on, and Matt offered up some really good advice and and you know talked about the and of course we mentioned uh, Saint Amy Hoy when we were talking about this stuff too. And it's just like yeah, it's just like Amy Amy all the time is always about just really what just separates some you know, some even just minorly successful people from everybody else is really just executing even if it's just executing on something dumb so many people will literally get to the point where they have to execute and just the idea of following through on something even something that they're interested in is too much for some people they're like I, I just can't do it and it's yeah. it's it, even just even just doing something really simple is enough to push them out of this little comfortable bubble and zone they've created for themselves and and in their minds executing on this thing pushes them out of the bubble and Lots of people are just simply not comfortable with making that type of change or, and, and command. They come with all these excuses about why, why they can't do stuff. And believe me, for all my nonsense about time management and, and all the really cool things that I've actually like started and executed and, and got working the way that I wanted to work, there's been plenty of ideas where I came up with and it came to execution time and I was like, nope, this is stupid and I got sucked in by a bad idea. So I'm just going to throw this off to the side and go on to the next one. There's plenty of projects where I put a lot of work into it and got like halfway through and and then did and looked at it from a different angle. I'm like, this is dumb and you fell in love with the idea um, and this isn't going to be what you want it to be. So um, we're just going to toss it away. So Ed, I know we've been monopolizing the conversation here so far because, you know, some of us are published authors and others, you know, are published musicians, but um, mm-hmm. anything you wanted to add or, or talk about before we shift on to the next topic? You know, I think one of the things is I was, I was interested to read this book um, because it, so, so what I did was uh, demanded a free copy of it from Matt <laughs> Online. Which is a, which is and a power he, which is a power move I have to say. Yeah, I mean it, yeah, it worked, it, right? So it did. It, 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 it he immediately gave in. Uh, it was easy, and I felt good about it. Um, I think it's a really good book, and and it uh, and and so I was excited to read it because of I I feel like O'Reilly has done a good job on in recent books and sort of like modern PHP topics, like say the book Modern PHP. Um, and I, so I was, I was pretty interested to read it and I, it, it, it took away the only thing that keeps me from, uh, that has kept me probably the whole time from, from, uh, messing with Laravel too much was that it didn't have much marketing about it. And I appreciated that very much. It was very straightforward and, and that, and I, I just, I'm, I'm not an artisan. I'm sorry. I'm just not. That's and, all right, uh, and I just never will be, and so that I, just, it, it, I can't, you know. I'll, I mean, maybe other people are artisans. I'm just not an artisan, and 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 that's just the way that I am. Anyway, I don't know. Whatever, you know. Sounds like you had a nice little time there. <laughs> I did. That's good. That's good. It's good for everybody. Ed's, Ed uh, has patented the backhanded dismissal comment. I've noticed over yeah, over, sounds, over sounds 80, like had a good time there. Over, over eighty nine yeah. episodes. Oh yeah, 
let's not bring him in. Suddenly had a good time. No, it's cute. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you proud of yourself? Looks like you were having fun. That's good. All right. Now quiet. Now quiet. Ed, you're talking. All right. Let's go on to the next. So, so as I segue to, I've been getting back into doing some stuff with Open CFP and digging it mainly because one of the things was that the. Uh, for people who don't know what OpenCFP is, it's a web application that I wrote a number of years ago to handle talk submissions for my dearly departed conference, True North PHP, and it turned out to be useful to enough people that I open-sourced it and put it up on GitHub, and I've had a lot of awesome contributions to it. And, and But at the same time, the code base has been allowed to languish in certain places, and one of the areas where that kind of neglect was showing was that there's a couple of, of libraries that are integral to the application themselves that are either deprecated or no longer under development. So the first big one is the authorization and access control library that I was using from Cardalist called Sentry. It's been deprecated, so I've been working on replacing it with Sentinel, which is from the same folks. And it's been almost a drop-in. I've had to do, like, code-wise, it's been almost a drop-in replacement, but... Um, but some of the other stuff has been uh, like a bunch of uh, database schema changes. And then the next thing I have to do is also, and this is one that's going to cause me even a lot more dread, is to yank out the um, database uh, access and mapper thing that I'm using from Vance Lucas um, called Spot that is no longer under development at all. And he's looking for people to just take it over. So I need to replace that with something else that continues to be under development because I don't like I don't like using dead and deprecated packages in my projects because security holes and, and other things, things I can't anticipate. So that one is, I don't know if I want to go doctrine or if I want to, since other parts of the application are using Eloquent and Illuminate under the hood, and I know it's a Laravel thing, so my skin is all itchy and I'm getting an allergic reaction to the thought of more Laravel mm-hmm. in my app. But um, but I may go with something like Eloquent uh, ORM and bring the wonders of active record um, to the application. But this got me to thinking as I was going through the code base and looking at stuff I had done and stuff that the awesome contributors had done. And I noticed there were some places where there was a big lack of consistency in the approach. So it made me wonder in terms of like, if you have an open source project and you're looking to get other people to come in and contribute, you know, because OpenCFP is way more work than like I can do on a Friday or a couple hours during the week. I'm doing a lot more because there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to tear out and and cut a version two because there are a bunch of weird changes that I feel are, in terms of semantic versioning, it's good to call it a version two because your old database stuff just will not work. And I have migrations and other stuff. But to get people to contribute, does consistency matter? Like, if you look at your app and go, okay, in one place we did a controller this way and we did a form in this other way, but somewhere else in the app we use a different tool, we use a different approach, um, what are you guys' thoughts on, like, does consistency matter for getting people to contribute or does it really not matter? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, thanks, Ed. I, I, think, I, I guess what I'd say is that I think things like that help a lot to get people interested in a project. Um, I think it's not the only thing that helps, but I think it sure helps a lot. Uh I think that getting people to participate in a project is always a challenging thing, but the easier you can make it, uh, the better. And 
consistency and making things not less confusing and uh, is one part of probably of making it more accessible. So I would say, yes, it does matter. Um, so yeah, there you go. Problem solved. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like there's like a couple different things you need to manage. And one of them is like the, the end quality of the, the code. Um, one of them is not turning away people who are new. Um, and another one is like kind of what, um, what is the experience of people contributing to open source? So like in terms of the end quality, I think that regardless of what I choose to do in terms of what I make the committer do before I'll merge it, um, I will always make sure that there it's consistent. Um, and everyone at Titan kind of laughs because I have my own internal set of standards that are not encompassed with PSRs or CS, CSS Rs or JS Rs, whatever, you know, <laughs> and then they just know they have to like, when you start working at Titan, you just kind of have to have memorized the Matt loves CSS um, properties alphabetized. Um, same for um, PHP imports. They got to be alphabetized, not ordered by length. And it's just these little space after the exclamation, uh, space after the bang and a negation, stuff like that. Um, and it's all these little things. And then, of course, they go to other things like, you know, like you were saying about controllers and whatever else it ends up being. Um, and in my open source projects, it's a little bit like that too. You know, the consistent contributors kind of start to learn those things. But when somebody sends in a pull request that is just wrong in a million ways, you always got to be kind of sensing. Um, this person's attitude and their posture and how much you can get out of them um, before they start feeling discouraged. And it's always like walking that fine line of like, tell them to change all the things you can get them to change without turning them away and then take the responsibility for the rest yourself. And I think that the, it, sometimes it feels a little hard to justify because you're like, well, you're being lazy. But of course, like if you're an open source ma maintainer, you've, you've got a job, you've got other stuff going on. But I've received some feedback from people who learned um, kind of some some things from contributing to my um, my projects that have actually confirmed to me that this is a better idea than I realized it was, where they said basically, um, hey, people, go contribute to Matt's and other people's open source projects because you basically are getting a free code review from a senior developer who you might not have access to at your job. And so a couple guys, um, Jacob Bennett and Michael Dorinda, now run the Laravel News podcast, and both of those guys um, were kind of developers who I said, Hey, why don't, and you know, who are coming up and I said, Hey, why don't you um, do this, this, and that? And one of the things I told them to do was go contribute to some of my open source projects because you're going to get your names out there and people are going to know you and you have code that you've written that's out there. And that's a way to help yourselves be known. Um, and both of them have since come back and said, I learned to be a better coder because you basically tore my stuff to shreds and I learned coding practices. And I hadn't even realized that, but like, you know, for y'all, like when you are giving people code reviews, they're learning. But of course, it's always like a balance. But like there's maybe even benefit to be had there that we don't even realize as we're giving it. Yeah, I mean, for me with OpenCFP, most of the time when I when I would see a... Uh, I, there's only been a very small number of pull requests that I rejected. Uh, most of the time when I saw somebody do something, I was like, great, I have an enthusiastic contributor who fixed something about the app that was bugging them. Like somebody submitted some cool stuff about uh, adding the ability to make the drop-down list of, uh, of potential topics um, configurable instead of always being there. Because people will complain, why does it say IBM I in there? I'm like, well, go ask Adam Culp because he's the one who initially did that. So, um, but the things like that, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very reluctant to... to 
turn away uh, a pull request unless it's so like co- unless I look at it and go oh my god I like it. no like I don't want that feature or this code is just so horrible the 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 big thing I reject for is usually if someone submits something I'm like of course and this comes as no shock I'm like where are the tests if there's no test to prove that this new thing works as expected I will not merge it in so that's kind of been the one uh, hard requirement I've had I'll merge almost any PR that moves the application forward um, fixing problems for people because it, it may be a result of like the focus of this application. It's a type of thing where people will like set it up once and then the thing just needs to work perfectly 100% through their entire mm-hmm. call for papers period. So they don't have time to go in and fix weird little bugs that they find as they're going on. It just needs to work. So if someone provides me with a solution to a problem that they had and it seems like a reasonable problem that other conference organizers have, I'm like, as long as they have a test and the code doesn't look really egregious and they're not like doing things like a really weird way that I would never in a million years think to do myself, I'll be like, hey, thanks for the contribution and merge it in. And I've discovered, not that it's a bad thing, but in some cases I'm like, yeah, I was a little bit too permissive because as I go in, because, you know, a thing like updating your authentication and access thing, that's a thing that's just simply because of the way the application is designed. There is no one central point. There's no like one place where I go where I swap one thing in and replace it. It's like I have to touch all these things. Any place where we're like trying to find out who the active user is and what level of permissions they have, I have to go change something. Sometimes it's literally just telling the code, oh, you pull this service instead of this other one. Um, but looking through, I'm like, man, some people doing stuff, I go look back, I'm like, I just really like, I just don't like that. It's not like it's wrong. It's just like, ugh, I just don't like that approach. Why did we not go with like, you know, the controller standard here? It's like, we have this method and it's called this thing. Why is it called that? And why did this person invent an identity provider? And why did they do all this stuff? And so in going back, I'm like, yeah, maybe I should have been a little bit more picky, but I didn't want to discourage people from contributing. So now I can go back and go, oh, I see what they're doing. So then I make a, have to make a decision. Am I going to leave the, leave this whole thing of providers in? Or am I just going to go, yeah, I want to do this a new standardized way and rip all that code out and duplicate stuff so that it's consistent with the way that everything else is being used. So I think a lot of the problem is just, I was just like, yeah, this looks good and merge it in and wasn't probably as picky as I should have been. But like you said, you don't want to discourage people. You don't want their first, you don't want their first like interaction with open source to being some, you know, D level internet celebrity telling them, uh, I don't like where your braces are. And uh, that becomes the reason why the pull request is rejected. You know, I mean, I know there are levels of pettiness, but I would prefer like, I'm so chuffed that someone found this application and want to contribute something and you've added a feature. And I, and I believe this feature even if it doesn't have value to me, will have value to other people who are going to use this application. Let's merge it, and I say thank you. I ever think maybe it might be appropriate, and I know I've taken this approach some on the uh, probably smaller number of. Well, I've done a couple open source, bigger open source projects, but for the most part, smaller things uh, where you kind of have to take an approach, sort of like um, like an editor editor-in-chief like in a magazine where they end up rewriting a lot of stuff um and just to make it consistent with the feel of the of the rest of the work um and it doesn't mean i wonder if that's just something that people should have to expect to do a little bit i think otherwise it's just inevitable you're going to get that to some extent yeah 
Yeah, I mean, maybe I do need to be more, uh, just do more of that stuff and and just look at I mean, it. It's, st- it's it's obviously a lot more work. I mean, I'm not, not ignoring that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, just it's because be it's pain it, in the ass. Yeah, it's like Matt I mean, said but, that that fine walking that fine line between wanting people to contribute but also having super high standards. Like I said, my one thing was like, well, this thing better have a test, and if it and, and at least I could at least that was one one area where I felt like being a hundred percent firm on that was not a bad yeah. thing. Um, I don't and, think that's wrong. And, yeah. and I thought everything else could be like, well, you know, we kind of already have, cause it's, you know, it's a Silex app and it's built in a certain way and you can't really deviate too much from it in order to get things done. So you're kind of locked into a certain approach and a certain structure, but you know, some people found some ways to do some interesting things. And as, and as I, I go through and, and are starting to, you know, refactor places and swap out Sentry and put Sentinel and maybe, you know, if I find stuff like, well, you know, somebody put all this, all this work into an identity provider and we're only using it at one spot. So maybe that right. means we should pull out the identity provider and just duplicate the structure I saw somewhere else. I mean, I saw, for example, uh, you know, there people don't know that there's action API for OpenCFP, but nobody uses it. Um, and it's an OAuth thing. And I may just yank that out and go, this is not, I appreciate that Dustin put a ton of work into this thing, but it's just, All it's, right. it's not being used and it's not really the goal of this thing. And I think there's some, I have an idea, uh, to accomplish some of these things, but in a but in a different way, and so I think the I think the API for OpenCFP itself has to go because maybe once this is done, I want to I'll explain. I have an idea to do a paid add-on for OpenCFP, and it was actually Joe Ferguson that gave me the idea for this, and it requires it, it could be interesting. And I'm just want I'm, I I, I want to talk to some people, not on the air about it, but but about like whether this is an approach that that could actually work. And whether it's something well, we should talk soon because that that API exists primarily to serve at least originally an app I, I run yeah, called for Symposium. That, yeah, that's like a a year late in actually building the feature that should use that API. <laughs> and we just had a talk basically two weeks ago. Said I said if we don't use this thing. Chris is going to delete it or set fire to my house or something. So I'm now literally hearing you saying on air, on air, you're about to delete it. So if there's any more way in the world where that can still stick around, I promise you it's on, it's next on the list for symposium right now. Well, I mean, I can leave it around. I think the thing that I want to do, I, uh, it's more like I look at it and go, I don't think enough people are using it. And if it's a feature not being mm-hmm. used, what I may want to, uh, may want to leave it in there, may want to, fix something with it but i have an idea to do something else it's not related to that but i just look at it and go nobody's using this thing and and it's and i mean i do know you guys were planning on using like well you know maybe matt's just doing some other things or symposium has decided this is not this is not something just writing a book yeah oh you just wrote a 480 page book i mean i mean come on you could have fit there's certain features where um it's just not going to be a outside contribution you know like there's there's certain features in any one of my projects where i know that if, if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And I just know that this is a broad vision thing of basically allowing you in symposium to say, um, you know, there's this conference that's run by OpenCFP. Symposium discovers it and allows you to click a button and submit, you know, for your apps, your talks that are in symposium directly to OpenCFP over the API. That's a beast. There's a lot of code. There's a lot of architecture. There's a lot of user experience. Nobody else is going to do that. Um, 
but me. So I just need to buckle down and make it happen. So well, then I won't delete it immediately. I'll wait and see for you to start asking yeah, me whether some, I actually some, some questions. I can, I can promise, leave. Yeah. I can leave it there. But I mean, it's uh, like I said. I just have an uh, idea for something else. But um, but it just again, it's just kind of look at that. I'm like, man, I know Dustin put all this work into it, but I'm like, is anybody even using this thing? And to me, the longer right. I have a feature in an app that nobody is using, the more nervous I get about having it in there because it's like, well, maybe maybe someone can exploit the app using it and do something dumb because. Right. Not, not enough people have tried out this feature to even figure out whether it's even working the way um, that it's in, intended to work. You know, so yeah, it's also it's technical debt, onboarding cost, more things you have to fix every time you upgrade. I totally, totally hear you on the the anything you can get rid of, get rid of it. So yeah. Yeah, never mind that the app has like 41% test coverage, which just like gives me the heebie-jeebies every time I see that stat. I couldn't believe I let it get that way. It's like, oh my God, why is it so bad? I'm hoping it's just because I'm just hoping it's because it's like highlighting directories that will never have any tests in them. So it's like looking at all this stuff and going, oh, there's no tests for these things. So I don't know. I have to go and look at because I use Code Climate, been using them for years to analyze that stuff. I think I have to look at how it's doing the report and make sure I'm actually covering things that I need to actually worry about. Because I would hate to find out it's like trolling through some directory of code where there's no test for it's like that's not even my code. Why are you penalizing me for 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 having low coverage when it's like third party code that I don't control? So yeah, 41 percent does not make me happy. That's so, awesome. Yeah, well, it's the cobbler's shoes problem, right? I'm too busy yelling at people to test their own stuff that my own stuff doesn't get tested properly. True that. True that. So how are we doing for time? All right, so, so Ed, I know we have a topic. What do I do? No, not what's well, it's it's something you haven't done yet. It's because we oh, okay. we we bumped this from the last recording that we did, where you wanted to talk about that new little mini console thing that you bought and we're taking pictures of. Because I don't think we actually oh, yeah. did, we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about it. Sorry, I'm cleaning up my bookmarks right now. Hang on just a minute. Hey, Matt, that do you know, you know that you know, yeah, Ed plays video games while we're recording, too. He used to play until I yell <laughs> at him all the time. He used to play, what the hell was that stupid prison game you used to play where you're all underground? What the hell? Oh, prison, prison Architect. Prison Architect, that's the one. Yeah, asshole, oh, no, you're, no, asshole you're to play of, games instead of focusing on what I'm saying, Matt. It's like, I'm completely... I'm going to do you one thought here. I'm, <laughs> God damn it, I don't know what that Ed. was, but Yes, I you it. do. Don't be like that, man. That was a good time. I can see how many people start start getting noticing these. I'm good with this. this you guys played all... Super Mario Run at all? I know. I know. I haven't. Oh my gosh, it's so wonderful. I mean, it's it's the iOS. I don't know if you guys are iOS guys, but it's the iOS Mario app. It's yes, it's I've heard of it. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. My, and my my son, and my so I've been trying to get my son started off topic oh no every, every, real quick there are no off topic things on this podcast <laughs> believe me so i've been trying to my son's four and loves the idea of video games and superheroes and stuff and i'm a geek so i want to get him intro to it so we play some things together but so far all that means is he sits on my lap while i play you know super mario kart or whatever and just presses like the horn and so i've been trying to like get him to the point where he can play the games but most of the time when he plays those games he just gets frustrated because it's just it's requiring an ability level past what a four-year-old has. And so we, we decide not to play those together. And so I'm just desperately trying to find games. And every time I ask someone, like, what are games that a four-year-old can play? A whole bunch of my friends who don't have any kids throw out really useless suggestions. And I have no, yet to find like, other parents who are like... Call of Duty. It's great for a four-year-old. Yeah, right, right. No, they, they have um, no idea. Believe me. Yeah. I run into the um, same thing all the time. 
But this game is great because, um, first of all, it's very simple. It's meant to be played with 50% of your attention and a single finger. Second of all, they make it so you can enjoy the game the whole way through. And mm -hmm. then there's, there's three or four different ways to play it. There's the, the competing against other people versus the building your kingdom versus the actual run. But also, and then you can collect all the pink coins. And then once you collect the pink coins, the, you play the exact same levels collecting all the purple coins, which are harder to get. And then you collect So it can get harder, but the base level is much simpler than your average video game. Um, he doesn't care about the coins. He doesn't even really know that they exist, but he can play that base level and he can be good enough. And they just introduced a new thing recently where if you die in a level, a button pops up that says, do you want to play this level on easy mode? And it gives you no, no timer and unlimited uh, lives within the level. So if you die, it just kind of pops you back up right, right where you were. There are bubbles in this particular context. And so he almost looks forward to the, the, that popping up because then he can play with freedom without getting stressed out by the timer. So this game, oh my gosh, I love it. Like he's so happy with this. So it, especially if you have kids, I would recommend checking it out. Right on. Yeah. I heard good things about it. I heard good things. So uh, the thing that I have is this, uh, it's an analog NT mini. And I don't know if you uh, pay any attention to old video game stuff, um, but this is a, originally this company, uh, analog, A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E, and they put out the analog NT, and that mm -hmm. was a device that it um, it didn't actually emulate. It was uh, a it it uh, is it. I think you can. I don't know. Can you still buy it? Maybe I don't know. Well, nope. It's sold out. Um, what they did was they pulled chips off of old NESs and basically put them on a new motherboard. Okay. And put it in a new, uh, like, brushed aluminum case and or some stuff like that, and you could get it with you could get an add-on that had an HDMI output on it, um, and so it it wasn't an emulator. It actually played on the proper Nintendo hardware for the Nintendo eight-bit system, the NES, and it was expensive. It was like five hundred dollars. But it was very, very well made and people, you know, but that was, it was sort of like this very high end tool or product for that kind of thing. Right. I'm looking at this thing where they, uh, it's at analog.co and they made a gold version of it. That was $5,000, which is ridiculous. I'm looking at the NT mini right now and it's blowing my mind. So I have an NT mini and I pre-ordered it in August and just got it like, I don't know, four weeks ago, I think. So the NT Mini is different conceptually. It does it uses instead of um, the same chips. It, they don't pull chips off of the old motherboards, which you can understand would be a bit of a hassle. Yeah. Um, architecturally speaking, the big difference is that it's an FPGA. Uh, hardware system, which, what does that stand for? Flexible Programmable Gate Array, I think. And let me just make sure I understand. I'm getting that right. So with FP FPGAs, it's essentially a chip that you can modify and reconfigure so that it simulates other hardware. 
Hmm. Uh, so the idea with an FPGA is that now I think the first time I heard of somebody using it, which I'm sure this is the only time I heard of somebody using it, was um, that oh shoot, what is her name? She now does. Uh, she used to work at Valve, and she did a bunch. They did a bunch of alt, uh, uh, what do you call that? Augmented reality stuff that then Valve ended up ditching. But she went off and and did her own thing. Um, or Jerry Ellsworth, I think, is her name. Uh, let me make sure that I got her name correct. Yeah, Jerry Ellsworth, and she does. A, she's basically like a does a bunch of chip and hardware hacking stuff and things like that. In two thousand four, she made this Commodore sixty four on a chip within a joystick, and it was called the Commodore sixty four Direct to TV. Hmm. So it was basically a C sixty four that had some games built into it, and. Um, the thing that was interesting, it used an FPGA the same way to simulate uh, the hardware. So it's not emulating it in that it's not taking commands and then it, you know, it doesn't say create a software version of, of the CPU and then try to, like, uh, you know, it doesn't do some kind of process where it, say, like, converts commands that are sent like this into commands for a different kind of operating system or whatever. It actually basically is a reconfigurable hardware piece and that which uh, can act and hopefully behave exactly the same way that the original hardware does. Um, and this lets you do a few different things, but one of the big things that you get out of this is that it does full 1080p um, uh, digital uh, over HDMI, and it does that without any kind of lag. Um, a lot of things that you'll get when you're doing, um, there's different ways of of basically scaling up the images that you have in uh in old video game units because old video game systems for the most part output at sort of a weird um sort of a weird uh resolution which is 240p and what that really was was it, that was half of the old ntsc 480i uh number of lines it was an interlaced 480 uh line screen well what they would do is it wouldn't do it interlaced it would do it it would basically uh, draw the same number every time, but it was 240. And the problem you get into is that taking those systems and, there, well, there's there's two problems. The first one is that just getting a good signal out of it that looks like it's halfway decent on a high-res big screen is hard. And then the second thing is that a lot of TVs... Um, do and a, a lot of you know modern TVs do a really really bad job of upscaling those 240p signals. They they might assume that it's 480i and then it does weird stuff like it expects it to be interlaced. It's not actually interlaced, so you get weird artifacting and stuff like that. Um, and then there's these units that you'll you'll get like uh, that that they'll call scalers which um people will get that will try to convert signals out so it'll scale up the the image and then output it to a a tv uh, a modern tv and one of the concerns that you have with those kinds of things is how much lag there is in it because 
if it's doing quite a bit of video processing, what that do, that's doing is if there's like if there's a what they call frame buffer in it, it holds those frames, modifies the frames, and then spits them out. And how long that takes can make a difference between and so that you have this lag between like when you actually when you hit something on the controls and when something actually happens on the TV, like when you actually see it. So what's that lag between input and actually seeing the thing happen? And in fact, a lot of that can be an issue even on current video game systems. And um, but it's particularly bad if, it, if you're doing a bunch of upscaling and stuff like that. And what you'll have is if you have any modern TV, if you have a modern TV, it might have or you might have seen something in the menus called game mode. And what that does is it basically takes out all of this extra processing that most TVs do because TVs will do things like try to interpolate frames so that if it's getting a 30 it's the worst. Yeah, I hate that frame interpolation. I always turn that off. If people don't know, you'll see a set that says, oh, it's 120 hertz or something like that. So that would mean that it was it could update 120 times per second. It could, it could theoretically, it can, it could draw the screen 120 times per second, draw the whole screen. Well, most of the, most of the input you're getting uh, for um, DVDs or from Netflix or things like that is usually more or less exactly about 30 frames per second. So what it so that's only drawing it at a quarter of the time that it would need to. And in order to make things look quote unquote smoother and in theory, it it is smoother. It just looks weird. Um, What it will do is it'll do this thing called frame interpolation where it effectively tries to draw in frames in between those in, in between each of the actual frames to sort of smooth the motion. And you'll see that if you go watch like a movie or a TV show, like at Best Buy or someplace where they're demoing TV TVs, and you're like, "This looks weird." Like it was shot on video or something like that. Well, it looks, it looks like a soap way. opera, right? It looks like a soap opera because those soap operas were shot at higher frame rates than film, and they kind of look sort of weird, and they have that kind of quality to them. It's not what we're used to. Um, particularly if you compare it to stuff that shot, most movies are actually shot at about 24 frames per second. Um, and so they have a distinct look to them that we sort of associate with film that we associate with movies and we kind of, uh, that faster rate, we kind of associate with kind of cheaper stuff. So that looks that way to us. Um, Sometimes you can find things like if you go on YouTube and look for stuff that it, it, you're getting to a point where now it'll, it'll you can upload like 60 frame per second video and you can tell a difference and it does look sort of more real if it's if it was actually filmed at 60 frames per second. I remember there was some movie that came out recently it was actually shot at 120 frames per second and there, but of course there's only a few theaters that can show it at that speed because you need special playback stuff for it. And people who were watching said it was so distracting because it's so different than what you're used to. Okay, so all this stuff goes into it. There's lots of processing that happens on modern TVs. There's lots of stuff about scaling things up that's problematic with it. And there's these things with the these outboard units that you use um, to try to do scaling up so it makes the picture look better. Um, and also there's just like 
how do you get like a good signal out of like a really good clean signal out of like a Nintendo Entertainment System, which the best thing that you can get out of it normally without doing any hardware modifications is a composite video output, which is it just sent video. All the video is over one cable and then all the audio is over another cable. So it's not stereo and it's a single pretty noisy, not very good looking video. Well, the way that this works is that it can do analog RGB output um, with you can get a few different kinds of cables that'll work with it. Um, which is if you're the kind of person like some people are who they like keep old CRTs around or they buy like studio monitor CRTs, especially a lot of those Sony machines that are Sony old Sony TVs that you'll see to play them on like the best CRTs possible because they think that they should play the original hardware on CRTs. So because that was what it was intended to play on. So they will, so this thing will play it exactly at the Nintendo entertainment system speed, which is 60.08 megahertz. Um, and, uh, not, not megahertz, uh, Hertz 60.08 Hertz. And it will, uh, then draw that at 240p and output it and be very, very clean, super clean. So you can send it to like component outputs or VGA or some other kinds of analog stuff. And it's a super nice, super clean RGB that's much better than you could get with the regular, the regular original Nintendo hardware, much better. And then the other thing that it does is it can, and without doing any kind of frame buffering stuff or anything like it's not taking stuff and scaling it up. It just draws it like this natively. Um, it can uh, do various different kinds of uh, line drawing modes so that it draws like three or four or five lines per line per, per original line. And so that way you scale it up so that it will do like 1080p output. So, and there's no lag in it. And that's the really neat thing about it is that there's no lag whatsoever. Um, it also has a couple different things. Like it has support for like the Famicom uh, disc system, which was something that only came out in Japan, but it does have support for that. Um, you know, uh, it, it does have, it has like a USB port on it and it has, um, and that USB port is really just for charging the controller. The more interesting thing is it has an SD card slot for firmware updating. But the thing that gets really interesting about that is the guy who did, I guess, the FPGA um, programming for it is this guy who goes by Kevtris. His name is Kevin something or other. Anyway, he's done a bunch of stuff. Like he did a... He did a hardware mod for the original Nintendo 8-bit that output HDMI, um, things like that. But he's, I guess, been messing around with a lot with FPGA stuff, These this, this kind of hardware simulation stuff where it's a reprogrammable core that can simulate hardware. So what he did, which is even more interesting, is that he has been releasing these firmware updates that are not official firmware updates for that analogs releasing, but he being the developer of all this stuff is releasing this firmware stuff himself. And analog is like, it's okay. You can run it and it's not going to affect your warranty. So that's a big key thing. You spent 450 bucks on this thing. Uh, you don't want to screw up your, you know, if the thing, you don't want to brick the thing and then like have it not work. And supposedly it's very, very hard to brick it anyway. Regardless, he released these firmwares that add support for, 
what he, he calls other cores. The idea is that because it's an FPGA, essentially what it is is he's releasing things that reprogram the FPGA so that it simulates other hardware, like a Sega Master System or a Sega Game Gear or a Coleco ColecoVision or an Atari 2600 or 7800 or a Game Boy or a Game Boy Color. So those are the cores that these additional cores is released and you have to go and download it. It's not like you could just, it's, I mean, it's a little bit harder to find than the analog stuff, but it's, it's not hard. It's not like you have to go in the dark net or something like that to find it. You just go to this, you go to this website called Atari Age, and there's a forum, po- there's this big long forum post that he's done because he's been talking about releasing like a big FPGA sort of like super system at some point. Um, but what he did was all the work that he had done on that, he had written these cores before already and was like, I could just port these cores to the things that I did on the analog NT Mini. So you get this stuff on an SD card and then you stick the SD card in the slot and it will load the firmware. And if you have ROMs for the stuff, the games, it has it can load ROMs off of that um, off of that SD card. So you can play Sega Master System games, for example, um, off of the SD card if you have the if you install that core and that 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 firmware for it. That's so, extremely cool. It's super cool. Now, from what I've read, the FPGA in it is not powerful enough in some way, which I don't understand because I don't know jack shit about this stuff, really. It can only do – it probably can only do 8-bit systems. It's not, there's not, it's not powerful enough to probably do 16-bit stuff to simulate 16-bit hardware. Um, but – uh, it uh, so it can do stuff like a Nintendo Entertainment System or a Sega Master System or a Game Gear, but it's not powerful enough to simulate like a Motorola sixty eight thousand. So it can't do like a Sega Genesis, and it can't do like the six five eight one six that was in the Super Nintendo Entertainment System or stuff like that. But still, pretty cool, right? And that is this box that um, you know. Out of it, you get like if you really like Nintendo stuff and you want to play on real hardware, well, this is but you want to get scaled up really clean 1080p output and um, you know, all this stuff and makes it really easy, but you're still playing with the cartridges, you're still playing with hardware. Uh, it's a nice unit, and then it gets really interesting if you get into like the like additional core stuff with it, because then you can take all that stuff and apply it to things like Sega Master System, Game Gear, Game Boy, stuff like that. So it's a really interesting piece of hardware. At four hundred fifty dollars, it's it's probably pretty expensive for just playing Nintendo stuff. Um. You know, it's kind of like the MacBook Pro of, like, that kind of thing. Like, you could buy something way cheaper that does, like, 90% of this. Like, you could get, like, a Raspberry Pi and, uh, like, there's there's some bills people put together, like a Raspberry Pi 3 that, like, has emulators built into it and runs stuff and can do a bunch of things for it. And it's like, yeah, that'll do you most of the way. But if you, like, you know, it can't you can't, like, take an old Nintendo cartridge that you have and plug it into that. Right. And you can do it with that. These have you can you plug original cartridges into it. Um, and but it's kind of, you know, like I said, it's kind of expensive because that Raspberry Pi thing would maybe be like 50 bucks. Um, but this is a really nice unit. You can use original Nintendo controllers on it. It comes with a wireless controller. 
all sorts of stuff. And then this additional thing where if you don't mind poking around a little bit on forums, you download these cores and you might have to do a little bit of work because some of the cores require these um, BIOS or, or firmware sort of files that came with the, the machines themselves that were that, and those get dumped out, but those are not legally. Well, there's some debate about that. I mean, I own most of these machines, so I figure like if I have a BIOS from one of them that I downloaded off the internet, I still actually own the hardware, so I don't feel too bad about it. Um, but uh, it's as illegal as like the ROM thing would be, you know, if you download ROMs and put it there. But you know, the other thing you might look at is is anybody making this stuff anymore? Probably not, especially if you're talking about like a ColecoVision, right? Um, anyway. It's something that I'm kind of excited about. So it's a pretty cool thing. Uh, it's a really nice unit, and it's neat. It's And, it, you know, my wife was digging being able to just be like, just plug in Super Mario Brothers, and she can play it, and she can play it with the original controllers exactly the way she wanted to on her big TV without any hassle. And it's a, it's a really, really nice piece of hardware. So it's pretty cool, and I dig it. And, yeah, it's not cheap, but it's it's a really neat piece of hardware, and I, I dig it, and I tend to overspend on these things anyway. So that's me. Anyway, that's what I've been doing. I'm going to steal that thing when I come to Ed's house. Probably you should. <laughs> yeah. sounds really good. Get you and Nicole to turn your back for a minute, and boom, what happened to our NT? And then you'll see me pictures. Oh, look at this thing I just got in the mail. I'm taking pictures, and Ed will be like, wow, it looks just like the one. Chris stole from me. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I own a bunch of old stuff like this and I'm into it, but like, like today I was just, I, I had some, all my tools out or out on the floor here in the basement because I was uh, opening up my old Atari ST to try to, it, it's acting a little wonky. So I was trying to change the disc drive on it and it turned out, I don't think the problem was the disc drive. I've been having things shipped over here from England because the ST was more popular over there. So you'll find more stuff like cables that'll like connect the RGB output to VGA stuff. And then I can connect that into one of those sort of like scalar units and things like that. Um, so I mess around with a lot of that stuff. But the NT uh, Mini is a pretty cool piece of thing. And so if you're really into that stuff, it's probably, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a really nicely made piece of hardware. Uh, and, uh, it just works, works really well. Um, if you hook it up to a CRT, it will work with like light guns and things like that. Those light gun things though, they don't work with, uh, with, um, LCD sets though. It's something that only works with the, uh, CRTs. I've so never thought about that. Yeah. It's something it's, it's particular to the way that CRTs draw stuff. So things like light pens, if you remember those from old computers, I don't know if you oh, do. Yeah. So light pens and light guns basically use the same idea, and they do not work with um, with LCD or LED sets. Yeah. Makes uh, sense, just not something I would have predicted needing to think about. Yeah, right. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I wish it did. I wish somebody could figure out how to make it happen, because I like shooting at my TV. But, um, you know, it doesn't. So what are you going like, to do? Like Elvis uh, in his later years, I'm imagining Ed there with the gun. Yeah, exactly what I imagined. Yeah. Less damaging. You don't, you don't have to keep buying TVs. But I didn't uh, like that level. Yeah, Blows exactly. a hole in the TV. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, in my fury rage, uh, usually what happens is I was playing my Commodore 64, and I would throw the joystick at the keyboard, uh, or at the Commodore 64, and had to replace uh, uh, the keyboard a couple times because of that, because I would break off too many keys. 
Um, so that was my proudest moment. You can tell. Um, anyway, I don't do that anymore with my computers usually. So yeah, this is good. This is improvement. Yeah, yeah. It's all you know. It's all so about growth. <laughs> uh, I can definitely yeah. see. I can definitely see Ed throwing a controller at something these days. That's for sure. Uh, throw something at something. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's a cool piece. Of, and I'm, I, you know, I can ramble obviously for a long time about this stuff. But it's exciting to me, and I think, I think it's it's interesting how the things from our childhood. We don't really let go of those things. You know what I mean? We don't really, uh, we don't, um, they still have those same emotional connections. And, and in a lot of ways we, it's different. They're not the same kind of connections that we build and, and have with things as adults. Um, definitely there's something different about it. There's something different about our childhood and those kinds of associations, emotional associations we have with things like TV shows or games or products or or food or whatever. Right. And I just, it takes me, you know, when I have this stuff, it just takes me to a a place that, you know, I think about it and it's like, this is kind of silly. Why am I, why do I spend this kind of money on this stuff? And it's, it's all still to just, because it's, it's like keeping in touch with that. And I don't have any other, I don't have any other explanation for it. It doesn't really make sense. Right. It doesn't, it's not a reasonable amount. Like why do I have all these old, why do I have all these old video game machines that I can see in front of me right now? It doesn't, there's no reason for it. Really. There's no practical reason for it, but it's just, it's, it's like surrounding yourself with things that give you comfort and it's nice. I don't know. I really went off on a tangent here, but yeah. I mean, I'm with you on that one. I mean, my my mom has saved a lot more of my childhood toys than I realized. And every time mm-hmm. she visits here, she'll just bring one or two things down for my son. And so she just visited this weekend and all of a sudden he's got my Lego set, you know, just this big blue bucket of kind of basic Legos. And we're right. walking through all the instructions that came through. And man, I just love that stuff. Like it's, it's, and I, I, um, uh, I had did some ROM stuff in my day and there's just, there's just something about, and even the TV shows that we're having him watch, we're like, well, you know, you can watch this generic crap and get advertised to, or we can pull up Animaniacs on a DVD. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's right. just, it's just how we're built. It's just a, that, that was a really special time for us. I think it, it really embeds in all of us. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, I mean, that's why I do it. And I'm, I'm glad there's some other people who, who sort of, it feels a lot better when you have a few other people who are kind of the same way into the same stuff. And it's, and I think it's, it's a cool thing with the internet to be able to, to talk with people who are uh, lots of people who are into those same kinds of things. So, yeah. all right, that's enough of that it's kind of uh, emotional garbage. Is there anything else we were going to talk about? No, I, I think we hit on all the stuff we wanted to talk about. I know I'm I'm hoping that uh, when we move to the new Grumpy Compound, I have a spot somewhere where I can – I want to get one of those uh, – uh, I want to get a MAME cabinet. So I have to figure out how I'm going to make that happen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, and that stuff has gotten – a lot of stuff has changed. But like I know Jason Scott from uh, Textiles Te- and yep. the Internet Archive has like – He's been, uh, our, and he got involved with the the mame and mess stuff to like, and you can play a lot of things online now. But he's been archiving just tons of that stuff, which is really cool. Um, so I'm glad that's happening. So yeah, still, it's I I there's some, and it's it's always I don't know, man. I get really excited about there's I mean, there's a lot of stuff that like only came out in arcades, 
And like you couldn't buy it at home. You could only play it. And can you, I don't know, it's a weird thing to me. Can you imagine making some, like making a game, programming a game that the only thing that it does is it was played in arcades? I don't know. Maybe that seems weird to me or something like that. Well, it's just a, but, pro, just a product of, of the times. That was the only place. I yeah. mean, the idea of the actual arcade is, uh, appeals to some hipsters, but I think like people like Nobody's, you, and, yeah, right. <laughs> but people like you, you and me, Ed, we remember as a kid, that was, the quality of the games that you would find at the arcade were way above yeah. what you, what you get at home, and that's you know that was just that's how it a was. Big change. I mean, I think of for me the games that blew my mind were the the video disc ones, so Dragon's Lair and um, yep. uh, Space Ace were the ones mm-hmm. that were for me just so just so far ahead of what you could ever ever play at home, and like that's just a piece of. You know, that was a little narrow period from like what, like mid 1970s to mid 1980s, where the arcade was a big thing. You go there and play games. And then after the mid 1980s, the home console started popping up. And pretty soon there's almost no arcades left. You know, there's there, there's barcades yeah. and where there's places that go play retro games, but there's certainly no new. I can't imagine that there's any new arcade games being made these days or very, very few. Yeah, you know, maybe like a Kickstarter thing or something, but not as a common commercial practice. A lot of the, there is stuff, but it's a, a lot of um, there's they'll make fighting games and simulators. Those like bigger, um, like anything that involves like driving or stuff like that. So there is still some of that stuff done, but it's a much. It's just, it is a lot smaller. The 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 arcade of the 1980s is dead. It's just straight up dead. There's it's not ever coming back so the only things that, that so you can see the things that like where they have it bar based stuff and there's that has gained some popularity but that's all because the people who are at those bars i mean that sort of the, the 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 middle group those people were around when arcades were around so they're going to be like oh yeah i remember robotron or i remember defender or a little right. later they might i you know i remember killer instinct or something like that um, or area 51. And so they, yeah, it's just a, it's a different kind of thing now, but I'm really glad that that stuff's back. Uh, you know, I can, it's reasonable to expect that you could go to a, there's actually a few things like that. Like you go to a bar and, and that's, that just, that's what they sort of focus on and it's, it's cool stuff. So I, you know, I'm into it anyway. Yeah, so so many things to look at and just so little time. I, I know right under my desk I have this awesome big tank of a controller from the X-Arcade folks that's like two analog sticks and a bazillion buttons. And every once in a while I drag it up from under my desk, get rid of the dust, and I try to find – I try to find an emulator that I can plug this thing into and use it. And the interesting thing I found is over time, I'm starting to have fewer and fewer options uh, for programs I can run like on my Mac and and play games on it. There's they seem to be kind of disappearing. So I wonder at some point I just won't be able to use this controller anymore. Yeah, I don't it's, know. It's kind of sad. Dead suck. It would suck. I don't know. I don't think I've ever showed it to you, Ed. One, one time, you, have you ever been over to my? I can't remember if I ever brought I've you over to my been to your house. Never been mm-hmm. to my house. Yeah. Well, it's too big for me. This thing is too big for me to bring when I come for my visit. But maybe one of these days I'll take a picture and send them to you and show you what I have because I, I had great fun playing video games on it. But 
It just seems like I may have to go the Raspberry Pi route to get something that actually will work with this controller, as opposed to something I can run on my on my fancy dancy uh, MacBook Pro. It's kind of interesting that it ends up going that way. Drop a hundred bucks on a Raspberry Pi and all the requisite so uh, you know uh, accessories and stuff, and then I can probably start playing games on it again. I guess it's probably what I should look into. Sure, get on it. During my copious amounts of free time on Fridays, instead no, of writing no. instead of writing a book on how to build a testing culture, I'll spend all day fucking around with a Raspberry Pi so I can play a pirated version of Gyrus or something stupid. I mean, yes. seems like seems like seems like a good use of my time. I love Gyrus. Oh, that's my favorite game of all time in the arcade. All right. Anyway, you know, Ed, I think we've made it to the end of another exciting episode of the Development Hell podcast. So, Mr. Stauffer, thank you so much for coming on and, and taking time out of your busy schedule and hunkering down in the laundry room at your house so you can rec- record. I got the I got the this thing went on too long. And so my wife is mad at me because she's not feeling well and had to do something like putting clean sheets on the bed because she's been sick. And I was just like, I'm still talking. And she's like going yammering on nonsensical stuff about priorities and caring about a marriage and stuff. I'm like, after 19 years, after 19 years, I don't care anymore. So you get your daughter. I said, just get, get Lauren to help you put the sheets on the goddamn bed. She's fully capable. And I could hear my daughter yelling. She only has one working arm. So I know she's picked up, picked up my sense of humor along the way. Yeah, well, you've met her, Ed. You know what she's what my oldest daughter is like. She's has all the all the bad qualities of me and all the good qualities of her mother. So of course she's like a Fair piece enough, of yeah. she's a she's a piece of work. So anyway, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you had a good time. You actually, no, yeah, you'll, be, for having me, guys. you'll be able to listen this to this episode, awesome. and you'll actually hear an episode where there's someone's actually being interviewed. So because I know Ed, I know Ed listens to the episode. I almost never listen to an episode once we've recorded. Ed just listens for weird noises in the background at my end of the recording. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. So, oh, hold on. My watch was just buzzing at me and distracting me. So, this has been episode number 89 of the Development Hell podcast. You can find every single episode we've ever done on our website at devhell.info. I usually uh, find a nifty title. Ed finds an appropriate graphic. We do a bunch of notes. And But, of course, mm-hmm. none of this stuff works without help from our sponsors. Uh, I do the closing ones now. I want to thank uh, Paul Reinheimer and his lovely wife, Allison. I think I believe I got that right uh, with their wonderful uh, child, Alexander. I hope they're having a good time as new parents. Thank you so much to Paul for all the support over the years uh, through Wonder Network constantly and continually sponsoring the podcast and providing the bandwidth for the live stream that one and a half people listen to. Uh, We have my stuff over at Grumpy Learning. If you're interested in learning the basics of unit testing, learning what is an assertion, how does PHP unit actually work, how do I make PHP unit behave in a way that makes sense, Check out my books. You can find them at grumpylearning.com and grumpy-learning.com. They all redirect to the same place. Uh, and finally, Ed's uh, trailblazing and breathtaking work at Osmi, OSMI, Open Sourcing Mental Illness. I'm a proud supporter. I have a hoodie. People ask me all the time about what it's, about what the hoodie's about. And then once I start telling them, they get, tend to get more interested or their eyes glaze over. I, do, I tend to get mad at them if their eyes glaze over because I yell at them about how important mental health is. And you should listen when people yell at you about things like that. Check out... Oh, see, Ed's going to correct me because I always think there's a hyphen there. There's not. It's, it's osmihelp.org, right? Did I mess it up again, oh, yeah. Ed? Yeah, O-S-M-I help, H-E-L-P dot O-R-G. Yes. You got yes. it. Yes, osmihelp dot O-R-G. Uh, and so thanks so much, uh, Matt, for joining us. We'll have a bunch of links up to, uh, we barely even touched upon uh, Matt's day job at, at Titan. Maybe one of these days we'll have him back on and he can explain a bit about Titan. I know some people have, have worked there in the past. I know Adam Wathen is a Titan 
alumni, among some other folks, I'm sure. Uh, I'll find out they had associations. But uh, you can also find us on Twitter at dev underscore hell. You can find me on Twitter uh, at Grumpy Program without the U. You can find Edis Funkatron with the U. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you all soon. Good night, Kenner.